and welcome to the latest in our actual spondyloarthritis podcast series. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a monthly basis alongside with our RA and PSA podcasts, and we'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of actual SPA. First, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Sofia Ramiro, consultant rheumatologist and senior researcher at Leiden University Medical Center and Zuiderland Medical Center in the Netherlands. Here today with me, we have uh, Professor Hideto Kameda, Professor of Internal Medicine of, at Toho University. And we are also joined by Professor Xenophon Baraliakos, Professor of Internal Medicine and Rheumatology at the Ruhr University in Bochum, and Medical Director of the Rheumatology Center Rheumatzentrum Ruhrgebiet in Herne, Germany. And of course, if you want to find, find out more about the papers that we discussed today and about us, please head over to the Immune-Mediated Inflammatory Disease Forum website, www.imidforum.com. So Hideto, over to you. Okay, thank you, Sophia. In the first paper, we will discuss today the authors explored bone-related outcomes and bone turnover markers over two years in patients with radiographic actual spa, receiving secukinumab in daily clinical practice. Following on from this, we will discuss our second publication where investigators sought to determine suitable clinical scenarios for administering JAK inhibitors in clinical practice, as well as to develop regulatory guidelines on the use of JAK inhibitor therapy in high-risk patients. Now, over to you, Xenophon. Thank you very much, Diego. As you mentioned, our first paper um, is dealing with uh, bone metabolism. It's entitled The Effect of Two Years of Sikikinumab Treatment on Bone Metabolism in Patients with Radiographic Access Spondylarthritis, authored by Sidereus and colleagues. For the study background, we know that radiographic axial spondylarthritis is associated with bone formation and bone loss, characterized by changes in bone-related outcomes and bone turnover markers, BTMs uh, in short. DNF blockers and I-17 blocking therapies have been shown to lower the disease activity in patients with radiographic axial spondylarthritis as shown through changes in these BTMs. Treatment with IL-17 inhibitors such as sekikinumab did not provide, um, uh, did not provide previously show um, significant changes in BTMs over one year. And the study monitored bone-related outcomes in BTMs over two years in order to study the long-term outcomes of sekikinumab treatment. For the methods included were consecutive patients with AIR-AXPA outpatients from the Groningen Lovarden AXPA cohort, a glass cohort, treated with sekikinumab over two years. A baseline in a two years, a spinal radiographic damage was assessed using the following three measures. The well-known EMSAS score, the modified Stokes ankylosing spondylitis spinal score, cervical facetion involvement according to the DEFLAM scoring method, and radiographic vertebral fractures via the Genant method. All of these are well known in the literature. At all visits, BTMs reflecting collagen resorption, collagen formation, and bone mineralizations were measured and expressed as Z-scores to correct for the normal influence of gender and age. For the results, 
patient characteristics reflected the well-known general asthma population with a male representation of 53%. Disease activity scores were representative of the general asthma population. The two-year progression rates for both bond-related outcomes were below um, the smallest detectable change, and only one patient experienced a vertebral fracture. Serum levels of SCTX, it's a serum C telopeptide of type 1 collagen, and PINP, the collagen type 1 and terminal peptide, showed no significant changes from baseline, whereas BLP, BALP, the bone-specific alkaline phosphatase, decreased significantly with a median Z-score of minus 1.2. So as a conclusion, Overall, the results show spinal radiographic progression, which is low during the two years of follow-up and correspondent with previous measure one and the surpassed trials. Bone-related outcomes, such as the MSAS, Fatchetson's joint score and collagen resorption, BTM, such as SCTX and PINP, remain constant, whereas BALP levels decrease significantly over two years. The BTM data from eight patients at three years of follow-up showed a sustained decrease in the BALP levels. What this means, this means that <clears throat> these results are in line with in vitro studies and highlighting um, that they highlight the ability of IL-17 subtypes A and F to promote osteogenic differentiation and matrix mineralization. Now, the question is, of course, what is the... Um, the lesson to learn for the daily practice. I'm happy to discuss this with you here. These are biomarkers and parameters that we do not um, use in daily practice, obviously, but still in terms of the literature and the data we have otherwise, we know that they have been, these bone biomarkers have been uh, well explored in other studies. As I mentioned, also high, um, showing um, similar results but now for IL-17 inhibitors, I would like to know what you think about that. Thank you very much, Xenophon, for this uh, nice overview of this paper. And indeed, you already started the discussion and question that, that I also had in terms of which are the lessons to take from this paper. But before we go there, maybe I would go one step even earlier, which is, I think the authors described of course, structural damage occurring uh, in, in the study, described the evolution of the bone markers, but they are not really relating them. Maybe there is a reason for that. Also, the evolution of each of them is probably showing us indirectly, although that I don't see the relationship in the paper, it's probably showing to us that there is no relationship, but in, in the end, what I think we would all like to see and what a lot of research has been put is into see if we can find biomarkers that can predict patients that will have or that will not have progression of uh, structural damage. What do you think about this? Well, um, maybe I'm biased because I have a predefined opinion here. And I think this predefined opinion reflects what everybody else in the field believes, which is that we cannot trust at the moment the biomarkers at all, neither for prediction nor for, for, nor for monitoring. Independent on whether or not we are doing these biomarkers, we are looking at these biomarkers in daily practice, which we do not do. Obviously, the best biomarker for that is still CRP, which is still only by 50% of patients positive. 
So um, I do agree with you fully. Um, this is not being shown here. It would be extremely strange if all of a sudden something would come up. I remember all studies that were showing in large cohorts, such as assert and the others, that there might be one or the other, one or the other correlation. But this has to do more or less with the fact that whenever you look for something, you will may always find a correlation by chance. You need to reproduce it. So these these things are not being produced. I am rather of the opinion that this study shows that there might be some blood parameters, I call it now, not even biomarkers, that may show a tendency. But certainly that's, um, I believe, something that is nice to know, but not more than that. Thank you very much. I think we fully share your preconception about biomarkers, as you mentioned it. So I, I share totally your view. Hideto, what do you think about uh, this? Okay, so serum biomarker reflects antithesis, focal region, and also some systemic bone turnover. So we do not know what is uh, reflecting the antithesis regions or some systemic bone turnovers. And my point is this study shows that some decrease in alkaline phosphatase activity. But I believe that one study and Xenophon may be involved in that, some post hoc analysis of major one study suggested that after psychokinemab treatment for two years, some increase in bone mineral density was observed. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, <clears throat> the question is now, are we indirectly increasing bone mineral density because we decrease inflammation? We know that, by the way, that locally there is osteoporosis even around the syndesmophytes if you find inflammation in the syndesmo in the in the biopsy. So is it rather a um, an indirect effect, or is this really an effect? And increasing bone mineral density doesn't mean that we increase new bone formation. We just improve osteoporosis. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so yes, this data exists. There's also very old data from Berlin that showed that um, we have osteoporosis and bone degradation at the same time in this disease. As you mentioned very clearly and correctly, this is an anthesitic, obviously, anthesitic um, um, ossification. So, and by the way, I think we, we all agree here, we are looking into patients with radiographic AXPA. There is already a long time gone until they come to that stage. So we don't even know, as Sophia said, we don't know what the prediction of the disease later on will be, yeah, because we don't see that the very beginning. Yeah, and I, okay. I think it's also very good to, to focus on this point of mineralization. Indeed, I was also going to mention that those inconsistent results between the studies and indeed what that means. And in terms of what, cons what uh, concerns BMD in AXPA, we also have a problem with measurement because uh, which is the optimal method to, to measure BMD? Because with syndesmophytes, we can have an artificially increased densi density of, of the bone indeed, and that has limitations and it's not necessarily at the same vertebral level as where the the, the syndesmophytes are formed. And recently uh, in our group, we have been looking at the assessment of the Hounsfield, Hounsfield units, which are measured with low dose CT. And it seems to be a, a reliable and a valid method to obtain information on the density of, of the bone. 
which eventually, if a low dose CT keeps uh, surging as an alternative method for the assessment of structural damage progression, can be a way to combine measurement of both. But I think uh, we still need to know more in this field. And I think that the topic is, is uh, or this paper is indeed emphasizing a topic, but perhaps opening more, giving us more questions than giving us uh, answers. So maybe it's a good moment to proceed to the uh, next paper, uh, Ideto, please. Okay. So over to our second paper titled Implementation of Regulatory Guidance for JAK Inhibitor Use in Patients with Immune-Mediated Inflammatory Diseases, IMID, IMID, an International Appropriateness Study authored by Storitano et al. As a study background, recent guidance from regulatory authorities on JAK inhibitor treatments has highlighted the importance of considering clinical practice practicalities prior to their use. High-risk patients are advised to avoid JAK inhibitor treatments as a first-line therapy. This study gathered an international panel of dermatologists, gastroenterologists, and rheumatologists to determine suitable clinical scenarios for administering JAK inhibitors in clinical practice and to create recommendations for regulatory guidelines on the use of JAK inhibitor therapy in high-risk patients. As a method, the authors conducted a two-round modified research and development University of California Los Angeles Appropriateness Methodology Study. A panel of 21 dermatologists, gastroenterologists, and rheumatologists used the nine-point Likert scale to rate the appropriateness of administering a JAK inhibitor for each proposed clinical scenario. Appropriateness scores were categorized as either appropriate, greater than 6.5, inappropriate, 3.5 or less, or uncertain between them. Two rounds of online surveys were performed, with a virtual meeting after each to enable discussion and reduce disagreement in scores. And the results? The level of uncertainty and disagreement between panel members reduced following virtual meetings. Jack inhibitor therapy was deemed to be generally appropriate for the majority of gastroenterology vignettes, depending on the individual patient risk profile. Alternative treatments such as anti-interleukin therapies were recommended over Jack inhibitors as the first line of intervention in dermatology patients. And Jack inhibitor treatment was only appropriate in low-risk rheumatology patients and only after initial treatment had failed. So in conclusion, JAK inhibitors remain an important therapeutic option for the treatment of IMIDs and can be appropriate for patients with low to moderate risk profiles. Flexibility is recommended for age and smoking history in the absence of other risk factors. Active counseling on modifiable risks is advised, including overweight, malhypolipidemia, and hypertension, as well as smoking cessation. Uncertainties remain surrounding some risk factors, for example, cancer history. The Pharmacovigilance Risk Assessment Committee emphasized 
the importance of assessing jack inhibitor risk on a case-by-case -case basis across all specialties. And these recommendations apply to all approved uses of jack inhibitor therapy in IMID patients. So I think there's some difference between rheumatology and dermatology and gastroenterology. And it may reflect some approved dosing. For example, uparacetinib is approved only for 15 mg per day for rheumatology, and sometimes up to 30 mg for dermatology, such as atopic dermatitis in Japan, and 45 mg per day for inflammatory bowel diseases. So always risk-benefit balance is very important. So Sophia, over to you. Yes, thank and you very much, Ideto. Uh, uh, I think this is clearly a hot topic because I think in every podcast, this topic comes in recent papers that are written from a different perspective. This is a very different one because it's not the usual RCT or a postdoc analysis, or but it's uh, a, a consensus and uh, an experts, uh, consensus of experts from different specialities. And I think the attempt was to uh, give some guidance uh, to the practicing specialists based on the the EMA warning and recommendations that have been issued. And we hear from practicing physicians that there is some confusion and some lack of clarity exactly what can be done, what cannot be done, what should be done or not. And I, I think I, I like in the, the conclusions that came out of this in uh, what, where was consensus where uh, the different specialists felt that some uh, criteria could be a little bit made a little bit more flexible. So when we're talking about age, it's not specifically the, the 65 only, but we, we should take age as, as a continue increasing uh, risk factor with increasing age. But for example, everyone agreed, and I think you will also recognize this from your practice, that it's not that a patient who is 64 has indication for a JAK inhibitor and then patient uh, turn 65 and suddenly has a contraindication. So these are the type of things that uh, should be uh, done with some uh, common uh, sense as well. And a lot of focus has been put on uh, risk factors that can be modifiable and where we can uh, put some efforts in terms of uh, a diet, in terms of uh, controlling hypertension, smoking cessation. Those are all uh, possibilities. Uh, and at the same time, also knowing that and uh, emphasizing that JAK inhibitors are good and valid therapeutic options. And even if patients have moderate risk, they can be considered, but it's very often uh, weighing the pros and cons. And very often it's dependent on what has the patient already have before. And it's for me also striking what you just mentioned that rheumatologists seem to be more conservative. That's what came out of that exercise. The question is, is it really due to us? Are we rheumatologists the problem? So are we too conservative? Or maybe we deal with uh, patients who have more comorbidity, especially when we talk about RA and PSA, which is a very different population than uh, atopic dermatitis and IBD, uh, for example. And it also has to do, a lot came out of the discussions, uh, has to do with what has the patient have, have what has the patient had before as previous treatments? Because uh, in a patient who has moderate risk, 
a JAK inhibitor may be adequate, but if a patient did not yet try another alternative mode of action, perhaps it would be most common most common to also try it before uh, if a patient already has moderate and certainly high uh, risk. And perhaps we have more therapeutic options uh, available for some of our diseases, where in some areas, especially in dermatology, there are sometimes less options. So perhaps that also influences uh, each uh, of us. Xenophon, what, what would you think about this uh, consensus exercise and any other take-home messages from your side? I was rather thinking at the moment, uh, similarly, is it that uh, rheumatologists um, are more conservative or is it that we are dealing with, let's say, different types of patients, maybe even other ages of diseases, right? Um, that we see these patients where these indications apply later and they come in with more comorbidities, hence risk factors. Um, I also agree, they must, I mean, they must be a cutoff. Yeah? It's not uh, 64 um, days, uh, years, and 364 uh, days or so. But, um, and by the way, what we do know is that these numbers is, are just cutoffs for increased risk as compared to other drugs. Yeah? It's not that we are killing the patient here and we are saving the patient there. Um, we need to be aware of that. So overall, I think it's interesting to know how this... Um, uh, how things are being applied in other disciplines. I do believe it's an interesting information to know what's happening around us, but obviously individualized uh, treatment application applies here as well. Yeah, I think it's very important what you just emphasized. Indeed, this is not the difference between being harmful or not to a patient, as you just said. So this is the difference of comparing to other drugs. In this case, the co existing comparison is with TNF inhibitors and having a slightly higher risk than uh, TNF inhibitors. But in so relative risk is higher, but in terms of absolute effect, is there's the magnitude is very low. So still very few patients have this uh, uh, side effects based uh, uh, that were analyzed, namely uh, major cardiovascular events and, and malignancies. I, another comment I would like to make is that I, I think it may also be the case that oral surveillance has a little bit more impact on us rheumatologists because it was conducted in a population with rheumatoid arthritis. So perhaps we are more susceptible uh, to it and we are more following the developments in a patient population of, of ours, so to say, than specialities that do not deal with patients from oral surveillance and who actually don't know whether the risk applies to their, their populations because this has never been tested. So I think this uh, always keeps back in the back of our minds, uh, of our mind and of the mind of everyone. And I am afraid that we do not have immediately the responses to this, but uh, the more experience that we get with these drugs and daily clinical practice, the more we also know how to stratify uh, the risk of patients and who are the patients in whom we should be more careful. I think everyone agrees that in patients that are of high cardiovascular risk, then check inhibitors are not a first line. And I think that's completely in line with how everyone interprets the, the precautions uh, uh, issued by EMA. So slowly we understand it better and we know better where to draw the line and where we can be a little bit more flexible. And I think data accumulated in the upcoming years will, will help us uh, understanding this even better. Any final comments from any of you? Yeah, that's great. 
And Sophia, you're the one of the authors of this paper, right? That's true. That's also why I helped giving some insights of our discussions mm. indeed, because uh, I, I liked the, the approach as what we learned through the discussions indeed. So, well, yes, yeah, so I think, thank you very much, uh, Ideto. So I think this will uh, bring us uh, to the uh, ending of this uh, uh, podcast. Thank you for joining us for this podcast uh, brought to you by the Immune Mediated Inflammatory Disease Forum. We really hope you find it useful. And if you did, please don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to read more about what we have discussed today, head over to imedforum.com where you will find summary slides of both of the papers. See you next time.